Yeah, so my name is Brad, if we haven't met before. And I'm excited to, to preach this morning on a Celebration Sunday. And I'm, yeah, even excited to, yeah, speak after a weekend of taking care of my children, uh, seemingly by myself, though uh, it's been fun to, like, hang out with different people throughout that weekend. And uh, one of the things that I just, like, worth saying is it's kind of cool that we get to be dads, those of us that get to be dads, um, that we get to have children that we love, that are given to us, and we don't deserve it. Like, if you, you know, filled out all the paperwork on how, you know, worthy you are to be a dad, uh, none of us sort of meet that mark, and yet we've been gifted these children. So anyway, I just wanted to to say that because I was thinking about it. It has nothing to do with the book of Joel. Uh, The book of Joel is a really remarkable book. I love the poetry. Uh, In many ways, it's about... Uh, insects and an infestation of locusts, which I know we all have a lot of experience with those sorts of locust plagues. Anyone ever seen a locust in real life? I mean, I'm sure they come all the time into our environment, right? Uh, but on the surface, Joel is about that. Uh, Joel is a prophet who is actually one of the older, uh, later prophets. So, side note, the 12 minor prophets are not in chronological order. So you should just know that. In fact, uh, these prophets are all sort of compiled together because they all fit on the same scroll. So way back in the day, the Bible wasn't bound in paper in English, but was written in Hebrew, which goes right to left, and it was rolled on scrolls. So the, the prophet of Isaiah actually came in two scrolls. Uh, but then the minor prophets, they pieced together actually intentionally and artistically so that the that each uh, prophet where it left off would begin the same theme or cycle back to themes before so it's one of those if you have ever gone to a very you know artsy poetry night or something like that where you have a whole bunch of people share seemingly random sketches or you know things but in the end you realize oh there was a theme to this that's what the minor prophets are like. But Joel is actually, he's one of those people who is, is sort of writing at the end of you know, the timeline of the Old Testament. And he's looking back and he clearly has uh, the scriptures in his mind as he writes this to a people that have not just been uh, exiled and returned. They're trying to like build their society back up again. But a swarm of locusts has decimated their land. And so it's about bugs but it's so much deeper than that. It's about uh, the brokenness of our world, that the, our world itself is broken. It's about hope. It's about repentance. It's about judgment. Uh, it's about restoration. And all of that, I think, is pretty important for us to understand. Uh, there's three parts that we're going to go through. Uh, there's, the first bit is about the destruction of the locusts and grief. The second part is about God's judgment that's like the locust, but it's more intense, and repentance. And then the last part is about God restoring all things, and and the fruit of that, instead of grief and repentance, it's joy. So that's what we're going to be getting into today. I just kind of want to start, and I'm going to read through a lot of it. So if you have your Bible, you should open it. We're not going to put it on the screen, so you're going to be able to see like where it is in context. Uh, If you have a Bible app, it's Joel. Uh, so you see, I think they're alphabetical order or whatnot. If it's if you have a paper Bible sitting around and uh, it's you know the last third, 
And you could miss it really quickly because it's just three chapters. But it's after uh, Hosea. And this is how he begins if you look at chapter 1, verse 2. He says, Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. And let your children tell their children and their children to even another generation. Tell them about what the cutting locusts left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Uh, Sort of prophetic words, he begins by saying, this is a once in a generation catastrophe. Uh, This actually happened again uh, in 1915. You can go back and look at a National Geographic article about it. It's pretty phenomenal. It happened in Palestine and Samaria. And what happened was this hundreds of thousands of locusts came in, and this is what happened in 1915, and most people think this is what was happening in the book of Joel. Hundreds of thousands of locusts descended on the land and they ate up everything. So mature, flying, black little bugs. Uh, They ate all of the the green stuff, all of the vegetation, all of the the, uh, vines, the fruit, the whole harvest. They devoured it and they consumed it because they had a lot of need to eat. And and, uh, Palestine in that day, Israel then had enough to provide for them. And the locusts, they couldn't kick them out. There's nothing they could do to destroy them or get them to leave. And then what happened later was, uh, a few months later, the mature locusts bore holes in the ground about three or four inches deep and laid their eggs. Each locust laying another 20,000 eggs each. It's a lot of locusts. But not only that, all of the boring into the ground destroyed the topsoil. It sort of became a dust bowl. And then when those locusts hatched, they all crawled. And in the early stages of a locust life, aren't you guys excited you came this morning? I'm kind of glad it's more of like a guy fest in here because it's like bugs. Uh, all the locusts would crawl out uh, because they, you know, in the early stage, not able to fly. And they crawled along the ground and then ate everything that was left on the ground. They crawled up on trees. They ate all of the bark. They ate everything. Then they matured and they began to hop. And so not only did the the first locust eat all of the green stuff, or the second uh, ate all that was sort of left on the surface, these continued to hop and devour what was left after that. That's what Joel is talking about here. There were the cutting locusts, the swarming locusts, the hopping locusts, and then the destroying locusts because they got mature, they ate whatever they could, and then they went away. And that's how it ended. A devastating disaster. A broken, shattered uh, society. I think disaster like this is pretty compelling because the Bible doesn't shy away from the human experience. It's one of the things I really enjoy about the Bible, just personally. Uh, the Bible is not filled with a whole bunch of, and then really good stuff happens. So, you know, the, the, they live happily ever after, and the bad stuff sort of disappears. Uh, the, the Bible talks very real what it means to live in a world that is not as it should be. Uh, the Bible doesn't uh, sort of diminish the, the floods, the earthquakes, the famines, the, the colossal disasters that happen that we receive. Uh, the waters aren't always calm 
in the Bible. In fact, the, the Bible uh, has this world view throughout that if you're alive, your day is probably coming when you will experience this sort of thing. It's pretty hard, right? Uh, I grew up in a pretty uh, comfortable life. You know, uh, my parents loved us. My parents had jobs, those sorts of things. Uh, but it was interesting. My mom grew up very wealthy. And at, what I realized when I became a teenager is she knew that one day disaster was going to happen because the odds are that way, right? Has anyone ever thought about that? That, hey, my life's going pretty well. Eventually, though, I'm going to get the call after the routine exams and they're going to say something's really wrong. Something's really wrong with someone I love. Or eventually... Uh, the big earthquake will come, and it won't be movies. It'll be real. Eventually, the empire of America will crumble. Uh, eventually, my, one of my children will go through something devastating. Because the odds are, if you're alive, the day is going to come. It's a sobering reality. And so... Joel is speaking into a people that have just experienced that. You can imagine someone trying to speak to the city of Houston, Puerto Rico, Miami, about, you know, right after an amazing flood. And this is what Joel really wants to get at. But what he's really helping people do is not just grapple with disaster, but understand the seriousness of God himself. Uh, That God is not... Uh, a joke to be trifled with. There's a great Regina Spector song. Laughing? Yeah, I'm glad someone's heard of it. Uh, Regina Spector is a really awkward performer, and then she recorded this song that was very awkward where she laughs in the middle of it. But the lines go, no one's laughing at God in a hospital. No one's laughing at God at war. And then she goes on to sort of describe, God seems a little funny uh, when we're told that if you give him money, he'll give you riches. Or God seems funny when he's like Jiminy Cricket handing out wisdom. Or God seems funny when he's like Santa Claus that he makes your wishes come true. But nobody laughs at God when the phone rings, when the police knock on your door. Nobody's laughing at God. And in many ways, that's what Joel is saying, is God and the world that we live in is so much more serious than we imagine. That that God is seriously two things, just and compassionate. And I think that we need the, the rest of this book more than ever, and I think that we need it as a church because it sort of answers the big questions of how do we respond to disaster when it comes Because we're a church that says we're going to live in community together. That we're going to share meaningful life, right? How do we respond when the disaster comes? He also uh, is making very seriously the reality of God's judgment and God's wrath. And the seriousness of what God expects out of humanity. And if we expect to be a people that's marked and that's a blessing to others, we must somehow have some way of communicating and sharing with compassion the seriousness of God's justice. 
but also how do we respond? How do we proclaim and be people of hope? Not just platitudes, you know. So, so Joel is pretty important. So after he explains in these first four verses the devastation, he shifts to the people. In verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, Awake you drunkards and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For nation has come up against you by, against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and its fangs are of a lioness. It has laid waste to my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Verse 80 says, Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering, the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord, and the priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground itself mourns, because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Verse 11, he says, Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O wine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. That last verse is pretty intense. And the gladness dries up from the children of man. One of the things that Joel says in light of what's happened is he tells people the truth. Uh, We tell people the truth of how bad it is. In the midst of disaster, he's saying, it is so bad that even children cannot be glad. The the laughter of children has dried up. The playfulness of children has dried up. It really is that bad. Disaster, he says as well, is for everyone. Everyone's affected by it. He goes by uh, sort of through the list of every type of person in the society, and he says, this is for you to mourn and grieve over. It's happened to you. Uh, It wasn't just the farmers. It wasn't uh, just the children. It was the farmers. It was the winemakers. It was the people who drink the wine. It was the people about to get married. It was, for everyone, a disaster. Uh, Disaster, destruction, chaos, whatever, suffering happens in community. And it happens communally. Uh, We sort of have this tendency in our society to think that uh, one person's suffering is just for them. Right? Like if if you have a close friend uh, who goes through something hard, oh man, they're going through something hard. It doesn't affect me at all. Uh, But I know that that's actually false. Uh, Recently, some of our very closest friends, a family in which we've known for a long time, uh, my family has known their family since we were born. I went to college with one of their daughters. They were in our wedding. We were in their wedding. And uh, 
Her brother, our really close friend, died just a few weeks ago from a brain tumor that he's had and he's suffered with for four years. And this guy was a remarkable human being and, and pretty fantastic. He had three children. He's six years older than me. And he died far, far away from us in Alabama. And the people that we love are far from us in Oregon and St. Louis. And yet, um, my wife and I mourned for days because that's not the way it's supposed to be. See, the, the, every hurricane, earthquake, tornado, disease affecting our bodies, our souls, our lives is a clear picture of the world is not supposed to be like this. And so Joel actually says here to intentionally grieve. In verse 14, he says, Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Joel's response to the disaster is to name it and say this is true and then to say, let's mourn. Let's all gather together and lament and mourn and grieve. We mourn that this is not the way it should be. See, uh, people of faith in God know. Know that the world was actually created to be a wonderful, thriving environment. That the human body was actually created to never die. To never have sin infect it. To never have sickness. To never experience the pain or the languishing of our bodies. Uh, We know that that in the beginning, humans were created to thrive and to be fruitful. That that every childbirth was supposed to be actually easy. That, That conceiving and having a child was to be the norm for everybody. That that the storms and the chaos and all of that stuff, the world was not created for. And so Joel calls the people together to grieve, not just that something bad has happened, but that the world is broken itself. That the the cosmos, that the universe, that the vast uh, expanse of nature is somehow distorted, disrupted, and at war with itself. In a way, it was never supposed to be. We grieve because we've truly lost what the human life was supposed to be. And we see it clearly now. We grieve knowing that this shouldn't be part of the human life. And again, he's saying, just like suffering is communal, grief is communal says, call the assembly, gather everybody together, all the inhabitants of the land, and what are they supposed to do? <laughs> There's a cool flashing. Uh, they're supposed to cry out to God. Uh, so I'm not going to give the seven you know, layers of grief today. Uh, actually, Mirella, my wife, uh, is oddly a biblical like grief expert. She's like dove into it very deeply, and, and it's through experience. But there are two big principles about grief. Do y'all want to hear them? Uh, Throughout all of the Bible, 
grief happens with others. The idea that, that someone needs to go and sit alone isn't actually true uh, as part of the overarching experience. Uh, often what happens when someone experiences something very difficult or traumatic directly, like the loss of a child or a loved one or a parent, is you have people sending flowers for like a few days and then nothing else for years. And everyone sort of assumes and asks the question, so are you over it yet? Anyone experienced that grief and then asked? Yeah. Are you over it yet? When are you going to be better? No, I'm never going to be better. Um, But what the Bible says is the grief like that happens in a group of people with others. And what do the people do? This is the second big part of grief. You cry out to God. And uh, what Joel doesn't say is you cry out to God and you tell him these things. You cry out to God and you say, hey, I know this really terrible thing just happened to me and to us, but uh, I guess I'm supposed to accept it. No, what, what Joel just says is you get together and you cry out to God. Uh, what does that look like? You can look through many of the Psalms, but, but essentially what Joel is saying is you make God the focal point of your grief. That uh, Jack Miller, a really great writer, he's since passed away, but he's written lots of really wonderful books. Uh, in one of his books on servant leadership, he actually describes suffering because he thinks all good leaders have to be uh, leaders in suffering. But he says, if, if you're, you put yourself at the center of suffering, so if you think about all that's going on and you put yourself at the center of it, you're the focal point of everything that's happening and everything that's bad, and, and you even put yourself at, I've got to get better at the center, your suffering will consume you and you won't even exist anymore. You'll just be suffering. It's like, but if you put God at the center of your suffering, suffering, make him the focal point of your anger, of your sadness, of your depression, of your failing, of your uh, even happiness, if you put him at the center of your suffering, you'll actually become like God. You'll become uh, transformed by those sufferings into the image of Jesus, a suffering servant. And so what Joel is saying here is gather together with others and cry out to God. All of the things that are going on within you, all of the feelings, all of the uh, poetic, intense poetry, deliver it to God. Make your audience uh, Him. So that's part one. He says this is the destruction that's happening We're going to name it. We're going to experience it. We're going to grieve together about it. Pretty heavy, huh? It doesn't get, like, less heavy. The second part is about judgment. Uh, I'll just read a a few of the verses here. In chapter 2, he says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountain. And a great and powerful people, their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. It says, fire devours before them, 
and behind them a flame burns, and the land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them is a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. He goes on to describe this descending uh, powerful army that will consume them. Uh, he's playfully working on the language he just used to describe the locusts. Now he's describing this sort of black army. And then in verse 11 he says, The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who, who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? After the suffering, the destruction, the grief, Joel shifts and says, actually, this is a kind of a picture of what's going to happen in the day of the Lord. Uh, The day of the Lord is a theme that will be repeated in almost every minor prophet. It's this day where where God comes uh, to settle his affairs. It's the day that, that God comes... Uh, to judge the living and the dead. Joel here describes an ominous look of, if you thought the locusts were bad, in light of God's coming judgment, the locusts will look like a vacation. The locusts will seem good. The locusts will seem like grace compared to when God comes to enact his justice. He's basically saying each day that the Lord doesn't come is an incredible gift. And it's a judgment for sin. Again, corporate sin and corporate judgment. Joel is saying the world is so broken by humanity. Humanity is so broken itself. God comes to judge. Pretty like remarkable reality. He, in some say he's saying everyone has an excuse because they're born into this world, but no one has an excuse as well. Everyone has an excuse because you might say, well, well, gosh, we're like all born. We're even conceived in sin. We're, since the day uh, we were even thought of, we were sinners itself. And then we were born and we're thrust into this world in which our parents are also uh, somewhat good people, but really they carry their own relational baggage and junk. And then our, our family members uh, sort of indoctrinate us into the ways of brokenness and selfishness and pride and greed and lying. And then we sort of grow up from there with these skills in sin and we just enact it on other people. So you might say, well, I mean, I was born this way. Uh, Even someone said earlier, you know, we are just human, right? So you might think, well, well, gosh, why would God come and judge when, I mean, that, isn't that a pretty good excuse, right? I was just born this way. But on the other hand, no one has an excuse. See, we were all created beautifully, perfectly imagined to live a full life of grace and glory to God. 
That, that each human is, is not just, oh, shucks, they're all so messed up. But each human was actually uh, conceived and thought of to be someone who reflected to the ends of the universe, the very nature of God himself. That each human is made in the image of God. That doesn't just mean each human has some sort of dignity. It does mean that. But it also means each human is not just created with the capacity, but actually all the equipment, all the wiring to be a person that reflects who God is to the world. That, that embodies the character of God, of compassion, of mercy, of love, of justice. Each person is actually made with that. It's, so when we say, and this is where I get to be at, you know, Tripp the other day, I got to share about his sticklerness with uh, language, about how we don't say we're going to church, but we are the church. This is my kind of thing here. Are you guys ready for my OCD-ness? Um, whenever we say, well, I'm only human, we should be referring to that sort of image of God. When someone comes to you and says, I can't believe, like Ryan just did to, uh, to Danny Boy over here. Uh, when, when Ryan says, man, you served me and you loved me this week and I got to know you. Daniel's response to, gets to be, well, I am only a human and I was created for that. This is how I, I was made to do that. So I'm only being my like true self. So let's not say, you know, I'm only human. That's why I screwed up. Because you were actually made to not screw up. That goes back to why we grieve and mourn. Because we weren't created to live this way. So no one has an excuse. There are communal sins of silence that that God is going to come and judge. There's the communal sins of passivity where we just say, well, I am in this society and this is how things work here. I don't really have a say in changing this system. There's the communal sins of just active injustice that's sort of covered up by euphemisms and uh, discretion and branding. It's like this isn't really, you know, consuming people. Uh, This isn't really a devastation. I'm just enjoying a new phone, right? Uh, My daughter once did this research because she liked the the Asian elephants. They had a big, like, Asian elephants. uh, They still do. A big group of very big Asian elephants at the zoo in Oregon. But one day she decided to do this research about the elephants because she got a prize if she went to the zoo with the research. And part of what she learned was that every uh, cell phone that we buy and and the the components within it requires an incredible devastation of the earth in like Burma and Bangladesh and northeast India to the point where where communities themselves are uh, completely devoured and consumed. Uh, If you think of the the whole blood diamond thing, it's like that, but on steroids. And And... my daughter's research was like, it's killing the elephants, which is true. But it's also enacting a large amount of injustice so that we can, with our, with our thumbs, like find the nearest coffee shop. It's pretty remarkable, right? 
Joel is saying, there's going to be a day where God comes and he removes the facade and he says, you are not even alive, you're not even the people that I created, and I'm putting an end to it. You might say, man, are you kidding me? I'm like a good guy. Do I really deserve this? Or you might say, well, I know within my own heart, like I'm kind of a bad person, but... Are you saying all my friends? I mean, my friends do pretty good things, right? Like Daniel that one time spent the weekend with Ryan and helped him. Like, does Daniel, I mean, he did that good stuff. I mean, surely, you know, we've all made mistakes. Some of us have idols in our hearts, but, you know, like, everybody idolizes their work and, you know, the approval of others. That doesn't really require this sort of like intense emo level poetry of the day of the Lord destruction. Why does God, and I hear this all the time, want to, you know, squish us like little bugs? Like, why does he think so little of humanity that he would wipe us all out? Has anyone heard something like that? It's really, God's judgment is not because he thinks so little of humanity. It's because he thinks so greatly of humanity. He knows not just the potential, but the purpose by which you were made. And he he knows that you were created to be a full, thriving, living human being, and instead you're essentially a zombie apart from him. And he's coming, and that day of the Lord is when he says... No more will I allow you to live in the facade that you're alive because you really have never been alive. You've never been with me. You've never dwelt with me. You've never walked with me. You've never been alive. I'm ending the facade that you've been doing that. And so Joel says, this is, this is what's coming It's like the locust, but it's way worse. And then verse 12, God speaks up and he says, Yet even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, steadfast, and he relents over disaster. Verse 15, he says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, and assemble the elders. He calls us to repentance, a communal repentance. And just a quick thing, because we can kind of, you know, beat repentance to death. In light of the book of Joel, he's saying we should come and we should give our hearts to God. He says, rend your hearts, not your garments. In other words, don't throw down your garments on the ground and sit on them and lay on them as as the acting of repentance. But put your heart, uh, in the Old Testament, the heart is the being of a person. Your personality, your gifts, your emotions, your thoughts, everything happened in your heart. They weren't like brain scientists back then that were like, oh, well, it's the neurons are connecting with this. No, and it's very poetic and true. It's like your heart. 
Put your heart on the ground. Rend your complete heart to God. That's what repentance is. And, and also, repentance in light of the God's coming judgment is not to come and say, God, will you please spare me my life? It's actually, God, will you give me a life for the very first time? I'm, I'm going to come and bring my, my passions, my skills, my abilities, my personality, my longings, myself. I'm going to come and put it out before you and say, can you make this a life? Because in light of the, the day of the Lord, I see I've not had one before. Will you be merciful, compassionate, and loving to me and give me a life with you? It's not about just sort of coming and saying, hey, I don't, you know, I don't want those idols anymore. It's coming and saying, those things do not make me a human or make me alive. We come begging for God to make us alive. That's the second part. See, it was more depressing than the first part. Lastly, and briefly, maybe, uh, he says in verse 21, he says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, the trees bear its fruit. And the fig and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given the early rain for your vindication, and He has poured down for you an abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, just as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats overflowing with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. Verse 26, he says, And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and I am your Lord, the Lord your God, and there is no one else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. While the disaster is communal and affects everyone, and it produces grief and mourning, while uh, God's coming judgment is actually for everyone and, and should draw us into repentance, this last bit he says, the restoration of God is for everyone in every part of society. Do you see how poetically, and this is why I didn't want to do slides or anything, because you can like flip through your Bibles. You can see how he's linked all of the disasters and the mourning and the grief from before to the, resur- the restoration in this chapter, right? That the land is now good. That the, that the fig trees and the vines that were laying on the ground, the, the fig tree that was broken in half and its bark was bare, is now producing a full yield in the fields. Everything, the children that, were, uh, that gladness had dried up in are now glad. Did you guys see that and hear that? And that we eat plenty and that we're satisfied. 
and we praise the name of our Lord. It's pretty good news. And then he says, what does all this restoration produce? What's the the fruit of it? If the other stuff was teaching us how to grieve, teaching us how to repent, what does this then produce in us? In verse 28, he says, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and the female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. He then, Joel, points to this future moment in time where uh, not only will the, the world itself, the brokenness of the world, be put back together, and not only will people be satisfied, but he's saying people will have the very Spirit of God in their flesh, in them. Not God dwelling among them, but God in them. This, by the way, is sort of the the crown achievement for the the scriptures. If you can follow through, uh, do a biblical theology, it's called of God's dwelling presence. And all throughout, it's seen as the treasure that everyone should be after. To be with God, to be in His presence, to dwell with Him forever. That's the grand prize of the human life. That's the only way that would make you a human life. And here Joel is saying, not only that, but God will be in you. In your flesh, in your bones. And it will produce dreams and prophecies Old men will have dreams. Young men will see visions. Even on the lowest person in society, God will pour His Spirit out. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is saved. That's what the book of Joel is all about. Uh, that's, That's the point of the book of Joel. Is to say, very clearly, this is what the world is like. This is how bad it is. Uh, this is how we re- should respond to that, that brokenness in the world. We should grieve because it's not supposed to be like this. And he says, this is what's coming for the world and for humanity. It's judgment. And we should repent to God and rend our hearts to him because there's no other way to life. And then he's saying, but what God is really going to do is restore this world Restore every part of it. Make it whole, make it thriving, and he's going to restore humanity. No more a need for repentance. No more a need for grief. All of that stuff will go away, and what you'll be left with is people with the very Spirit of God in them. I think that's what Joel was about when he wrote it. I think that's what it was about for the people that read it for hundreds of years until Jesus came. Jesus looks 
And, and God looks, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit look on the world and its brokenness from the very beginning in the garden when, when humanity chose selfishness, pride, their own egos, their own lives, apart from God. They looked at the, the incredible uh, chasm that that created. And the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit committed to this reality of restoration of people. See, the book of Joel, in light of Jesus, has a completely different meaning. Uh, Jesus walks on top of a hill, and he overlooks the city, and he grieves for it. Because of a whole bunch of people who do not have a shepherd, who do not know where they're going in life, who do not know what they were made for, and he grieves over it. He has a friend that dies, and he goes to the tomb, and he weeps with his sister for that death. Why does Jesus weep? Because he knows and he's experiencing very closely that a grave is not supposed to be the human life. Jesus knows the brokenness of the world and he enters into it, commanding, restoring things, calming storms, uh, healing people's sickness, casting out evil from people, he comes facing the stark reality that this world is very broken. And he mourns over it. He embodies that mourning. And then the judgment, the the real cliffhanger actually happens when Christ himself, who should be leading the army to cast judgment on all people on the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord switches and becomes this day when the Lord Jesus dies and receives judgment instead of putting it out on people. When Jesus says, this humanity does deserve this, there's one person who is without excuse. There's one person who lived a human full life. That's why Paul calls him the, first, you know, the second Adam, the true Adam. The one who, this is the beginning of the human race, really. Jesus was that kind of alive. And yet he died. The one that, that never even committed a sin out of his mouth receives the judgment of God instead of pouring out the judgment of God. And then as Jesus ascends into heaven... He promises them that He will be with them forever. That uh, His Holy Spirit will come and empower them. And then this, these two verses of chapter 2, 28 and 29 is what Peter quotes and recites on the very beginning of the church. The very first day that the church ever existed when people are speaking in all of these languages that they do not know and people are coming to faith and repentance uh, like fire, Peter stands up and says, what Joel talked about has happened. It's pretty awesome. We are not a people just looking into this story. But we've experienced the fall, the redemption, the restoration of God himself. The spirit descending to us. That the spirit is in our flesh. We're a people of restoration where God is with us. We can look at all of our stories and we can see the destruction that we've done and that we've experienced and and that we've received. We see all of that brokenness and you can share it with others 
We know the judgment that we should deserve. And yet, we get to sing and dance and have visions of a life that's different because we've known the saving, restorative work of God. I mean, that's what's awesome about Celebration Sunday, right? We all share uh, these things from our lives that might even seem trivial, and yet we know it's a vision of God's wholeness and restoring work in us. Uh, the, The book of Joel is the good news about God. That he's defeated sin, that he's defeated death, that he's defeated all evil and destruction, and he's making everything new through Jesus. He's making us new. Because God received the wrath, but he raised Jesus to life. He's making us new by dwelling within us. So I just say, um, as I wrap up here, that all of that that I just shared is true. Sometimes it's worth saying at the end of a sermon. All of that is true. But we often do not live like that is true. We often grieve as if there is no hope of that. We, we often uh, look at the destruction of the world and we just blame people for it. We often, as communities trying to make disciples in the world, uh, live as if there is no joy, no dancing, no uh, restorative work in our midst. But this is what's true. There is a restoration happening. Jesus is uh, continually calling us to give our hearts to him to have a life. And so for some people, this sermon could sort of be like a funeral where uh, the spirit is working in your life, calling you to come and die. Right? Sometimes a, a sermon is a funeral for you. Um, or it could be a wedding for you. Maybe what the Spirit is saying through this, as we've looked at this text, is saying, come and be alive. It's like receiving the proposal and coming to the wonderful celebration where God has said, you are the one that I've wanted and that I've desired and I'm making you alive. So maybe it's one of those things. But I'd say to, to press into that reality, whether it is come and die, whether it is come and be with God forever, right? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the, the reality that we do this all together, that you call us to repentance together, that you call us to restoration together. Um, Yeah, that your spirit is poured out, not to one person, but to all of us. God, I pray as we go and as we live our lives uh, in community, in work, with our families, that we will live um, as people who have your spirit. That we would be able to quiet ourselves enough to hear your voice and to be present with you as you are present with us. I pray in our hearts that we would repent and we would experience that this morning. I pray for people to have faith and the gift of faith this morning. That we would see these things to be true and that we would know them on our bones. Amen.